Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's a blessing to be here in this house, but, uh, oh man, it's been an interesting past month, Father's Day, and even then we'd missed a Sunday or two before that. It's been an interesting couple of months as uh, we've seen people come down sick, people hurting right now, people just needing God's blessing, but I'm so grateful that we can be here in this church. And I'll, I'll tell you what right now, it was, uh, it was a little on the stressful part on my side, as many, as I pointed out already, we're planning for camp. And during camp, we're not going to have just one message. We're not going to have two messages. We're going to have six messages over the next four days, from now till Wednesday morning. And I thought I was going to have some help preaching on that. Turns out I don't. So, so it's just going to be me. Six messages over the next few days. Pastor had a plan. He wanted me to be preaching out of this book. The book didn't come till Tuesday. Actually, correction, it didn't come till Wednesday morning. The book that we were going to be preaching out of didn't come till Wednesday morning. And then I sat down and read it and realized that this book isn't good for camp. It's a good book overall, and it's a book we'll probably be teaching the teens later on, but this is not the book we need to be doing for camp. So Wednesday night is when we started sitting down and figuring out what the lesson plan is going to be for six lessons, six sermons over the next week. First one written Thursday night, two more written Friday night, got one written uh, Saturday morning. I thought I was doing good because pastor was going to be preaching one of those messages. So I thought I only had five. So I'd gotten four done. I had one more left to go. And then pastor gives me a call saying that uh, he was going to be not able to make it this morning, asked if I could preach today, as well as the sermon on Monday. So I went from having five sermons that I thought I needed to make to seven, with three that needed to be done yesterday. And I say all this for a reason. Today, this morning, I'm here on purpose. I'm here to worship God. And if my sermon seems a little bit off, please know the reason why. But <laughs> but I'm here to worship God. I'm so grateful that we can be here this morning, that, that, that we're feeling well enough to be back together in God's house. I'm so grateful that I can be taking these teens. I'm excited. I am nervous as I'll get at, but I am excited to be taking these teens to camp because this is the first time I'm going to be the one teaching the camp. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity that God has placed before me. On that note, let's go ahead and close, or open up in a word of prayer. Not close, open up in a word of prayer. That was not my message, I promise. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for these blessings. I thank you for these men, these women, these teens who are here this morning. Come together to worship you. We're not here to hear Brother Daner preach. We're here to worship you. We're here to learn from your word, from your Bible. We're here to praise you in song and to lift, and to lift you up in our prayers together as our church, as our church family. Come together to worship you, Lord. And I thank you for that chance to be here this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me this morning as I preach, preach this lesson. Pray that it would be useful for you and for your purpose, for your will. Lord, I pray that there's somebody here who it, it's going to reach out to them. I pray that we'd come to this time with open hearts and open minds, ready to receive your word, ready to open your word and to worship you and study. Thank you and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so my teens, I'm expecting you to participate at least a little bit, because here's the deal. 
I saw this as the opportunity to finish out the lesson plan we started back in November, I think. Is that November? It has been eight months, eight months since we started this lesson, going Wednesday night, slowly going through Jover. What have we been talking about? I'm going to pick on you because I don't see Joseph here, and he was the only other one in most of them. So you were in like every single one of my classes. What have we been talking about since January? Do you remember? We've been talking about authors of the Bible. He got it first guess. I'm so grateful that somebody learned something from all my classes for eight months worth of teaching. We've been going through authors of the Bible, slowly just kind of studying what God had these men write down. And above all, the thing I wanted to stress the most is that even though there were human authors, human writers for the Bible, this is God's word. God spoke, man wrote. God spoke the words, and man wrote. Jover, God spoke, man wrote. We've been, we've been, that has been our theme this entire time, is God spoke, man wrote. Now, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to 2 Peter chapter 1. This has been our, I guess you'd call it our memory verse. Again, this is our theme, theme for the past Eight months. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I really should have it memorized, but I'm standing up here. My mind is going blank at this point in time. Second Peter, and I'm in First Peter. Why am I in First Peter? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Man wrote the words down. But they, they wrote these words. They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is God's word. But that doesn't change the fact that the men God used to write his word have something to teach us as well. It, God used these men for a reason. God used their skills that they had developed. He used them to do his will. So far, and, and there's a little bit of a parable, and maybe you guys have heard me say it before. This is um, kind of one of my favorite parables, stories, um, about the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've heard this before. I think I've said it more than once up here on this stage. But the blind men and the elephant. So there's five blind men, and they have never seen an elephant before. And they're led to the elephant and said, describe what you see. You have one man who goes up to the back of the elephant and he grabs the tail. And he says an elephant is like a thin rope. You got another man who goes to the front of the elephant and he feels the trunk and he says an elephant is like a snake. You have another who goes up to the side of the elephant and feels the side and says an elephant is like a wall. You have another that feels the leg. says an elephant is like a tree trunk. And another who feels the ear and says an elephant is like a fan. Now I ask you this, which one of these men was wrong? Not a single one. They told what they saw, described it as best as they could, and together you get a better picture of the elephant. None of them were wrong, but none of them were completely right either in describing this elephant. Just like that elephant, these men are trying to describe God. And give us God's word. 
and how God has worked in their lives. And through studying these men, we get a better picture of who God is. We get just a little bit more, a fragment, a little bit more. Every time we read the Bible and we understand a little bit more, we get a better picture of who God is. We started off the lessons with David. I mean, David, if, maybe go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 23. Maybe you know this one right off the bat. You get a picture of David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And we see kind of one of probably one of the first Psalms that he wrote in Psalm chapter 23. And verse 1 <clears throat> says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not need anything. I don't need anything else because the Lord is my shepherd. What kind of faith is that right there in this man? And this is as a young man. Such utter faith in God that he's not going to need a single thing more. I've got God, nothing else is necessary. But if you turn the page back, the same man, chapter 22, chapter 22, verse 1, says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. But thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Here's the same man, utter faith in God. Yet when times of trouble came, he had doubt. We're allowed to have doubt. We're allowed to feel pain and to cry out for, to God saying, help us. God, don't forget me. Help me. We have the words right here. They're in the Bible for a reason. We spent a little time talking about Luke and the book of Acts. The author being, you know, Luke. It's awesome when they put the name of the author right there in the title of the book. It makes it a lot easier to find out who the author is, right? But you have Luke and the book of Acts. Here's the interesting part. We know almost nothing about Luke. We know, one, he was a doctor. He was a physician. Two, we know that he traveled with Paul. Three, when Paul was in prison, he stayed with Paul. And that's it. There's no other mention of Luke anywhere in the Bible. He is a, he's just there. And yet, God used Luke, this unknown man, to write one quarter, one fourth of the New Testament. The only other person who wrote more than him was Paul. Well, er, wrote more books. When you start talking content, actual length, word count, it's Luke all the way. The only other person in the Bible who wrote more than Luke would have been Moses with those first five books. How amazing is that? This man that has no face for all intents and purposes, who has no other mention other than that he was a physician. And yet God used him in a powerful way. We spent time talking about Moses, how he lived in pastor, or, sorry, in Pharaoh's house. He was raised to rule. He was raised to be a leader. And he was taught. He was taught history. And he was taught mathematics, he would have been taught literature, he would have been taught law. 
but he started out his life. The first few, few years, the first things he learned was Jewish tradition, was how to be a Jew, what it meant to be a Jew, and who their God was. And God used Moses to set his people free. We spent time talking about Mark and John, spent time with Paul and Jonah. Each one of these men, their lives were shaped by God. And we see different aspects of God with each different story as we're learning it, as we study these men and what they have to teach us. But ultimately, Jover, God spoke, man wrote. These were God's words spoken by these men. But God used these men for a reason. It was these men that were used by God to write his word. Now, we started, I started kind of closing out this series. We started talking about Hosea. It's a hard one. It's one of the minor prophets. Hosea, his story focuses on the fall of Israel, Israel's destruction and being scattered to the wind. Then we talked about Jeremiah and the fall of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, and all of the Jews, the tribe of Judah, being sold into slavery. We spent some time in Esther and in Daniel, which gives you hope in the darkness. Hope during that time of captivity when Judah is destroyed. But there's still hope for, for God's people, for God's chosen people. Then we talked about Ezra. Ezra who wrote, he didn't lead the first return, he wrote about the first return. In the time of Daniel, it's awesome if you, if you start studying how interconnected these stories truly are. You get to see how Ezra would have, um, sorry, the Jews would have returned back to Israel to rebuild the temple in the lifetime of Daniel. Daniel would have seen the captivity and destruction, and Daniel most likely would have seen the return and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and his people returning home. It was 60 years after the temple was re rebuilt that Ezra Comes onto, the, comes onto the field and actually leads the priests back home to Judah and brings the law, the books of Moses, the Bible with him back to the temple and is restored in the temple. And finally, we get to come to Nehemiah, my subject this morning. Go ahead and open your books or your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah actually focuses on rebuilding the Jewish nation, the rebuilding, the rebuilding Judah as a country, as a nation. It has some interesting authorship as you start, if you do any studying. Yes, it has his name in the title, but that name is actually fairly recent, which is a little bit weird. That name, the name of this book only came out about 400 years ago, give or so, or give or take a century. Before that, it was just known Ezra and Nehemiah were just one book. And it was titled Ezra. But where does Nehemiah come into play? This is the interesting part. 
bottom line is? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that the book of Nehemiah, as it is in our Bible, is written in the first person. So it's all about Nehemiah. So what happened? Maybe Ezra, I don't know, he took Nehemiah's diary and kind of put it in with his book and the two came together and came in Jewish tradition and this is the book that you read. You read it together because Ezra would have been here right alongside Nehemiah. So uh, for time frame, Ezra went back to Jerusalem 60 years after the temple was rebuilt. Nehemiah went back to Judah about, or Jerusalem about 75 years, so it's only a 15-year gap. So yes, they would have lived at the same time. They would have been together at the same time. They would have been involved with this, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, at the same time. So was it Ezra who took Nehemiah's diary and combined it into one book? Don't know. Other people say it's a third guy, just some random guy. We have no idea who it is. Took Ezra's diary and Nehemiah's diary and combined them into one book and did some editing, and I don't know. God moves in ways that we don't always know. But I, what I can tell you is that we know a little bit about Nehemiah. This is his words, because guess what? And Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 says, the words of Nehemiah. Kind of gives you clues as to who's writing this part of the book. Certainly hope so at this point. If somebody is just randomly saying, I'm Nehemiah, but he's not, then that would say that this is a lie, and my Bible doesn't lie. I'm just pointing that out. The son of Hakaliai. And it came to pass in the month uh, Cheslu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace. And for all intents and purposes, those are exactly how you pronounce those words. Do not question in any way, shape, or form, because I will deny it entirely. <clears throat> Nehemiah, the book, the essence of Nehemiah is here in verse 2 and verse 3, is who Nehemiah was. Verse 2, it says, that Hanani, one of my brethren, so this is my, this is the first person, so this is Nehemiah's brethren, probably just a fellow Jew or maybe even a brother or a cousin, came and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. This was his big concern, was how is Jerusalem? How are my people? How is the nation of Judah doing right now? Verse 3 says, And they came unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there and the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And this was a heartbreaking statement for Nehemiah right here. And it's kind of hard to understand why for us today. Today, I've been in Bakersfield for about 10 years now. I have never once seen a wall around the city. Have you guys ever seen, anyone who's been here longer, anyone have any record of walls being around Bakersfield at any point in time in history? No, no, I got a whole bunch of no's. So it's a, small, it's a hard concept for us to understand that back then, at this time period, walls were necessary. Even the smallest town would have had a wall built out of at least wood. Walls provided safety. They would have lived at a time where lions were a real issue or wild dogs were a real issue. Guess what? Walls protect you from the creatures that live outside the walls. True concerns for the people who are living in this time in this city. For us, not really a concern today. These walls provided safety 
And with safety came trade. People will go, oh, here's a good city. It has walls. It can protect me. I can build something here so I can begin trading with this city over here. It brought trade, which brought wealth, which brought growth, which brought prosperity. Without the walls, you got none of that. Your city might as well not exist. The walls of a city define the area around the city. Define the city in general. So without the walls, Jerusalem, for all intents and purposes, might as well not exist. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, right? No capital, no nation. For, if I'm doing the math right, 130 some odd years, the nation of Israel has not, or the, sorry, the nation of Judah has not existed at this point in time. They have a temple, which is great. But the nation, the people have no place to call home. They have nothing to define themselves as the Jewish people, other than their traditions. Remember when uh, Joshua came in to conquer the promised land? First city they came to is Jericho. Why did they need to destroy the walls? Could they have just gone around the city? The city was just a small little part. Without that, with that city there, they could never say that they have conquered this nation, conquered this land, conquered the promised land. So guess what? The walls came tumbling down, right? God took those walls down. The city was conquered. And it happened once the walls fell. When, in the book of Jeremiah, when Babylon came in and destroyed, conquered Judah, what is, how did they conquer Judah? They came in and they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, making sure that we're all on the same page here. Why this is such a big deal, that there are no walls around Jerusalem. Without this, the nation does not exist. And here's Nehemiah, who breaks down in tears. It says, verse 4, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, not just for a few minutes, but for days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He was that heartbroken, knowing that after 75 years of people having come back to Jerusalem, of the temple having been rebuilt, his nation still is dead. It has not been come back to life. It has not been brought back. Now, Nehemiah had a certain job. He was the cupbearer to the king, which means that he was beside the king at every meal. Every time he ate, there was Nehemiah right beside, his side, right beside him, bring the cup. He'd probably take, uh, taste the wine a little bit, make sure that the king's cup was never empty. He was all, most likely, this, this was, without a doubt, a position of honor. This did not go to just any old slave. This did, not just go, this did not go to just any guy off the street. This was the guy who was protecting the king. This was the, guy, this was the king who, or this was the man who, in a lot of ways, sat behind the throne and helped give advice to the king. And that was Nehemiah's job. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, 
Nehemiah has been serving beside the king, and the king notices that he looks a little sad. Then the king said unto me in verse 4, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Why do you think he prayed at this point when the king asked him, what do you request? Because he knew what he was about to ask was a big deal. As I point out, rebuilding these walls means rebuilding the nation of Israel. So here is Nehemiah coming before the king with a request to rebuild these walls, with a request to rebuild the nation of Israel, which the king's ancestors had destroyed and conquered. That's a big thing to ask. That's a big ask. Verse 5 says, And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by, sitting by him. I find this one interesting. The queen sitting by him. Who is the only queen in the Bible that we are aware of that would be alive at this time that would be important enough to mention in any way, shape, or form? Esther. Queen Esther. Just tying the, Bibles, the books in together. Just tying them in so you see that there is a history. There is an interconnectivity. There is a reason for some of these books to be in there. And the king said unto me, the queen also beside him, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. I love this, because it, it also shows Nehemiah's relationship with the king. Because the king doesn't hesitate. He says, okay, how long are you going to be gone? And when are you coming back? You don't, you're not concerned with somebody coming back if you don't want them to come back. This was his friend. He's doing his friend a favor. He's doing his friend a blessing. I, 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 thinking back to, in, I think it was in Esther, where the king says, or king comes to Esther and said, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you unto half my kingdom. He says that not once, but twice, if I remember right. And this isn't in my notes. This is very much off the cuff. This is just a thought that I had here. So I'm sharing because apparently there's no filter. So I'm sharing every thought that's coming through my mouth, uh, through my brain. One of those three. All right. When these kings make these promises unto half my kingdom, this isn't an idle promise. Here is the king promising Nehemiah, you can go back. You can rebuild your nation. You can rebuild your people. Your people can have a home once more. Just come back once you're done. Just come back. We'll hang out some more. I love that. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he calls the people to rebuild, the people that are already there. And I love it, because if you, if you turn over to um, chapter 3, we're not going to go through it, but you start reading through the list of the people who are working on with each section of the wall. You see first on the list, actually, you know what we'll read, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. The very first people on the list who are building this are the priests, are the spiritual leaders of this nation. They're the first ones at the wall to rebuild the wall because they know how important it is for God's people to have a home once more. 
Going through the list, you see men, you see women, you see rulers, you see merchants, you see priests, all coming together to rebuild this wall, to rebuild the nation of Judah. And yeah, there's some opposition. They've got, they've got some people outside the walls who are very angry with this and try to get the king against Nehemiah, but I guess they don't realize that Nehemiah and the king are good friends, so it really doesn't matter at this point what the king says goes. But they still try. They still try to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall. Again, why is it so important that they're rebuilding the wall? Because the wall is a symbol of the nation of Judah. They have opposition outside the wall. They even have opposition from inside the walls, from the very people that they're trying to rebuild the nation for. Some of them are still fighting against Nehemiah and try to stop the wall being built. Gets to the point where Nehemiah and his people, his, his builders, start building with weapons in their hands. Chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16 says, And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the harbergians, I guess, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. Here's Nehemiah, here's his people, here's half of his servants, half the people who are working for Nehemiah. Some of them are building, the other half are actually carrying the weapons not only their weapons, but the weapons of the people who are building, so that in case they're attacked, they have the weapons at hand right beside them at any point in time. Verse 17 says, They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those uh, that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. So they're lifting stones with one hand and a spear in the other hand. Sounds like a very hard way to work. For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side. And so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. They worked together, knowing how important these walls were. And if you read the story, you find out that they succeed. They build these walls. They rebuild the nation of Judah with these walls. It's reestablished. And they bring rules and they bring laws. And God used Nehemiah and his desire, his prayers to bring this about. It was Nehemiah who had a burden for the nation of, uh, nation of Judah. He wasn't the only one who had that burden. You see how many people built beside it. But Nehemiah had a very special position. He was best friends with the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. So he had that opportunity. The only, as far as we know, the only person who had that chance to speak to the king. If Nehemiah hadn't had that burden, he wouldn't have spoken to the king. But it was Nehemiah and his desire to see his nation restored that God used to work his will and way. God restored the hope of the nation of Judah, restored it through Jeremiah, or sorry, through Nehemiah. Without Jerusalem being rebuilt, there would be no Bethlehem, no Christ. No cross, no salvation. And it started because God had, er, God used Nehemiah in his desire to see his nation whole once more. He used that to work his will and his way in this world. And I think that's an amazing story. And a man that we can learn from. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today, and thank you that we have these words, we have this story, we have the life of Nehemiah and the work that you did through him. We thank you for all that means. We thank you that you answered his prayers, not just his prayers, but the prayers of those in Judah, in Jerusalem, who are crying out to you. You answered their prayers through Nehemiah. Lord, your word says that the, the effective, fervent prayers availeth much. And here we have an example. I can't thank you enough to know that the God that was there that cared about Nehemiah and the people then is the same God that we have today. And that's you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this family. Thank you for this church. I thank you for this teens. I pray that you'd bless us as we go about our week. I pray that you'd give these teens and I and my family safe travel up to our campgrounds. And Lord, I pray that, pray that we would go to that camp with open hearts, open minds, ready to receive your word. Lord, this is a chance, an opportunity to become closer with you. And I pray that each of these young men, young women, are going to take you up on that chance. And we'll become closer to you. We'll begin walking in your spirit. We thank you and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.